some, Lord, you take from our assembly and they go home to be with you and they graduate in a beautiful sense. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And we thank you that Marie is with you. Thank you for the many years you gave her on this earth. Just the encouragement she was to so many of us. And Lord, I pray you would strengthen the Harris family as they have that missing person, that missing voice, that one they've loved so dearly, um, not in their home any longer. But Lord, thank you that they know where she is and they have great joy. And we do thank you for quickly taking her, Lord. And Lord, we ask that you would just bless this family, Lord. Father, we thank you for all the discipleship that goes on, whether it's a BFG class or discipleship training or sore care or any of those uh, ministries we have, Lord. We know it's imperative that we continue to disciple and be discipled. I pray, Lord, you would stir in the hearts of your people to grow in those areas. Lord, thank you for this time together. We look forward to preaching your word, ending this with remembrance of your finished work on the cross. May you bless all that's said and sung and done here in this pulpit today. In Jesus' name, amen. As I venture into 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I, I think Paul is still discipling. You've heard a plug for discipleship, and the reason why it's so strong and why um, probably an effort that I help bring here is because every page of the Scripture, the goals of Scriptures are to disciple us. And I don't think Paul's done discipling this church. And discipling is, is such an important spiritual discipline. And like any discipline in your life, it must be developed. Don't think you, you can just wake up and be spiritually disciplined. Discipline takes effort. It takes a step to take those. And what happens is it isn't until you're in the middle of a deep, dark, difficult trial, something that God has allowed in your life, or you're going to get some difficult temptation, and you wake up and you start to realize, I don't know how to handle this. That's where our weaknesses are exposed. And in the middle of that spiritual war that you go through, you will either fall back on your biblical training to turn you to Christ, or you will try to fight through it on your own. And so Paul never stops discipling. This last week I listened to a podcast. I don't listen to too many um, non-Christian podcasts, but I listened to one this week. It was caught my attention. And it was of an older, um, retired uh, general from our army. And he spoke about a lot of things that I think he was probably accurate on where our country's at. But one of the things he spoke on is how poor shape our military is in today. And he was a battled, worn uh, general. And he spoke of, of what it takes to have a military that is ready. If someone invades, if something goes wrong, how to have them ready. And not one person listening to that podcast at least had a brain cell would say, uh-oh, <laughs> we're in trouble. We're not ready. And you can be frightened by that. Please don't be. Our God is in control of those things. But the point is well taken when you start. And immediately as I was, I was on a walk and I was listening to it, and I, and I thought, Lord, that's the case with so many of us Christians. We're not prepared for the trial that's coming our way. We've got lost in the... Uh, the minutiae of the day and the life here, and we've not trained ourselves, disciplined ourselves for godliness. And something comes along that makes things very difficult. And I think too many Christians today find themselves in difficult situations, and they're completely unprepared biblically to handle that and to respond in a Christ-centered way. 
have not been to spiritual boot camp. I, I don't doubt salvation. God only knows that. But we see this particularly in the American church. And so everything has is, is become lighter and, and, and shallower and shallower because we're not discipling. We're not growing people in the word of God. And, and there's so much need that has to be poured towards the church in ways that if they would study the scriptures for themselves, they would actually do well in the trial and help others. But instead, the American church is often bogged down with things that people should be knowing how to handle from their study of, their word, of the word of God. Discipleship helps you labor and strive in this difficult world. That's what it does. And this is why we push this. Paul said, look, you've got to put on the full armor of God. Do you remember this in Ephesians 6? And he said this so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And he reminds us we're not just fighting against flesh and blood, but, but dark forces, Right? And so then he says, therefore, take up the armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done so, you'll stand firm. We know the great passage in Proverbs 3, 5, we probably quote it a lot. Trust in the Lord. Right? We know that passage. With all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. We love that text, but it actually is something that you have to take up the mantle and do. Trust in the Lord. Is that your first thought? Is that my first thought at times? No. There's times this week. No, my first thought was, oh, how am I going to do this? Is our first thought to trust in the Lord. So discipleship trains us and prepares us for the trials of life in this fallen world. And it strengthens us to live out the gospel in every relationship. So why do we make statements like work, home, play, church? I mean, we're thinking about Christianity far more than just these walls. I think that's what God leads us to. And discipleship motivates you to reach lost in, in word and deed. Paul, was, he spoke of this so much as he trained the next generation. He told Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Isn't that interesting, the words that he chose? Discipline, gymnazo, get our word gym and workout kind of thing from it. Train yourself. Gymnazo yourself for the purpose of making everybody look at you. <laughs> no, no. For godliness. So that we reflect God. That's the idea. That's godliness. We reflect him. Train yourself for godliness. See, this was the problem that was in Corinth. They were not training themselves for godliness. They were training themselves to draw attention to themselves. And so there was so much fractions among the church. And so Paul is always reminding us, never stop being discipled and never stop discipling. I have men that still speak into my life, still discipling me. Older men who I turn to for help and ask and pray with, they're still discipling me. And I am still discipling others. That's the call of all Christians. What have you learned this week about Jesus? What have you learned about his word? And have you told anybody about that? See, that's what discipling is. Look, life is short. Run hard and live for eternity. I think that's Paul's main message. And he comes to a church like this that is so fractured, so caught up in, in their personal problems, they are unconscious of what's going on with the rest of the church. 
And that's why he's writing this one. I know you go, hey, haven't we been talking about money a lot? Well, here we go. Here's another passage. I didn't write it here. This is where it's at. But it's an issue. And I want to show you why he deals with this. Let's look at our first point. Gospel-driven giving and the love for Christ's church. Look at the first two verses here that um, Aaron read for us. Now concerning the collection for the saints. I'm in 1 Corinthians 16, 1. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collection be made when I come. Now notice he uses the phrase, now concerning. If you remember, I know we've been in First Corinthians a long time, but these are main words he's used every time he is taking on one of their arguments. He's done this repeatedly throughout the lesson, throughout this letter. Now concerning, he's replying to their question. And so in some way, this Corinth church was questioning maybe possibly this need to give or this need for this church in Jerusalem. And if you think about it, you have a self-centered church, and when self-centeredness takes over, and you know this in our own lives, we don't know what's going on with others because we're so consumed with ourselves. That's probably, most likely, what's happening here. Most of the commentators and, and theologians agree in this. And so this self-centeredness, what it does is it causes us to look on our own issues, and then you're blind to the needs of others. It's a danger, isn't it? It works its way into our marriages, right? It works our way into our relationships. When we become self-centered, that works it in there, and then we're blind to the needs of that spouse and these other people that God's put in our life. This is how it works, and this was what's going on here. Paul seems to be answering questions here of this collection, right? There's a collection that needs to take place. I'll talk about this as we go along here. And, and it's evident that these Corinthians, were seem, they seem to be unaware and they've not, and it doesn't hard to see, they're not setting aside these funds. Notice he says the collection for the saints. And that's interesting. It's just, this isn't just for the Corinth church. This is a, a call for a need in other, somewhere in another church. And he's not only done it for, for them, he's doing it with other churches. You notice, look at the text, he says, just as I directed the churches of Galatia. He's, he's charging all of these churches that he's been involved with. That, and that Galatia would include places like Antioch and Lystra and Derby and Cappadocia and Iconium and so forth. All those churches in the southern Galatian realm. You'll know, you'll, you'll know in, in verse 5 when we get down there, but he says he's going to go through Macedonia. So now in Macedonia, you're getting Philippi, you're getting Berea, the Bereans, you're getting Thessalonica, the Thessalonians. He's, he's told all of them. And finally in verse 8, it tells us that he's in Ephesus. He's been there. We know he's been there for three years um, they're planting that church and teaching in, in different places. And so that would include probably at not only Ephesus, but Claudia, uh, excuse me, Colossa, uh, Colossae and, and Laodicea and Thyatira and Smyrna and so forth. Those are all in that region. And so Paul is saying, look, I'm, I'm not just telling you to do that. I'm, this is what we're doing. There's one of our churches, one of the brethren, they're, they're struggling. They're poor. They need help. And yet he has to remind this church to do this. Now, Paul would have certainly had taught the Gentile believers in Corinth um, the, the need to share physical blessings with others. They were doubtlessly taught of how the early church handled things. Paul would have said, hey, 
Do you remember what happened when the church was birthed and, and in Acts 2 and, and, and this great birth of the church? But what came of it was needs, right? And, and the Bible tells us there in Acts chapter 2 that everyone who was in need would come together, right? And verses 44 and 45, they, they believed together and they had all things in common and they sold their possessions and properties and they were sharing it with all, right? And there was no need among them, the Bible says. And so Paul probably taught them that. And this is what believers do. And I think it was natural for Paul to teach the church that there's a certain indebtedness to the church in Jerusalem. This is where the funds are going to. It's the Jerusalem church that's suffering. That's the one where God started this whole thing. The church was birthed there. They not only were the first to see the church grow, but they were also the first to hit persecution. And so doubtlessly they knew these things, but they seemed to be blind to the need to help. Now, most likely Paul was lovingly dealing with these difficult subjects. He, he's hoping they would cheerfully and without reluctantly give generously to this. That's what he's hoping for. And I think this truth was taught all through the church to meet one another's needs. James, one of our very first books, there's an argument between James or Galatians, who got writ- what got written first, are very, very close. But we know in that, James says in chapter 1, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, what? To visit orphans and widows in distress. So right up front, the church was taught those things. John wrote in his first epistle, said this in chapter 3, verse 17, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? I mean, what a statement. And so this is something that they knew. Now we're 20 years later, after the birth of this church, the Jerusalem church is in financial problem, they're, and it's due to the poor that in there. They're, they're, they've been gone through all kinds of things, and not only were they persecuted, because Jerusalem got hit early, right? Peter's put in jail, right? People are praying and locked doors behind um, locked doors. Rita comes and answers the door and, and thinks it's an angel and all that. It's, it's, when you've got to read through the lines there, it's not easy in the church in Jerusalem. But then Acts chapter 11 tells us that a famine also hit Jerusalem. So this church is truly struggling. But look at verse 2 with me. On the first day of every week, each one of you should put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collection be made when I come. Well, Paul used a very Jewish Jewish term here to grab their attention. He says, on the first day of the week. This is in order to describe to that Christian that that's when the church gathers, right? They gather now. It's based on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's based on the gospel. They moved off of the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday, and they moved to the resurrection because if Christ doesn't come out of that grave, grave, then we just ought to remain Sabbatarians and just stay there and just try to do good and keep the law and somehow get there, which they wouldn't. So the first day of week was extremely important to them. And here we understand that the Spirit of God moved them to meet, and it comes throughout the early church. They meet on the first day. I love to teach on those things. just Just a moment. Just think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As he bursts through from that grave and comes out of that, it is our guarantee that our sins are forgiven. I mean, that's why we're here. If your sins aren't forgiven and you're just going to church or you're trying to get your sins forgiven by doing something like going to church, oh, friend, you're in a lot of trouble. 
Those are filthy rags to God. That's just works righteousness. Everything we have as a Christian falls under the great resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in it. And so Paul uses that to grab their attention. But notice he says each one of you should put aside and save. See, he's still discipling here. He's still trying to teach biblical principles, good habits, good biblical habits of giving a portion of what God's given you back to him. And he chooses terms here. Um, I, I, I love languages. I, I, you know, I'm always, I always have the Greek out in front of me when I'm studying. And, and here, these are present tense. So he's, he's saying this, each one of you, right now and continually, in this moment, right now, set aside and save. Set it aside for the first day of the week to give to the Lord. Do this regularly is the idea. It's interesting, even in our affirmation, if you heard Bobby read that, I went back and was looking at this this week because I knew this was coming. And we said in that, will you contribute cheerfully after a bunch of other things, regularly with your time, talents, monies to support the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, the spread of the gospel to the nations as faithful stewards of God's grace? And will you strive with us to make Riverbend a, a Christ-centered church? I mean, that's, we put that right into our covenant. It's part of who we are. Oh, God, you've given so much, we give back to you. And yet, this church was struggling with that. Now, I think what Paul is doing here is reminding the Corinth church that there's a special gift. They're probably struggling in giving anyway. That's been their problem. They've been so self-centered. But this is a special gift, and it was close to Paul's heart. This is where his national people are most likely to be in Jerusalem. And he wants a gift set aside for them. And so he, he asked them, do this, do this now, and do it as God has made you prosper, right? And the, and the idea of that term is, is in relationship to what God's given you. That's, that's the idea, right? And so a lot of people like percentages and things like that as the way they give. I, I, I think that's okay, I, I, but we need to give from our heart, and we need to give a portion of what he's given us back. It's all his anyway, Right? And so when, when, when we write our check to give to the Lord, or we do it online like most of you, like many of you do, it's, it's our way of saying, God, this is just a portion of what you've given to me. And it's a joy to do that first before we pay anybody. We give it to you. Now notice this collection was to be done, he says, so no collection will be made when I come. I, I think this is an interesting phrase here. Um, there's, a simp- there's a very similar phrase back in chapter 4 when he's defending his apostles his apostolic position. Remember, they attacked his character. They attacked him. They tried to reject him as an apostle. He had to defend himself several times, not only in this letter, but he has to do it again in the second letter to them. And so he's kind of using the same things. Don't let me do this. Don't let me have to come and rebuke you when I come. Or don't let me have to come now and, and ha- waste all this time to, to go through all this teaching for you to give. And so then we have to spend all that time. I can't disciple you in other areas. Have it done before I get there. And so Paul's desiring this thing to be done properly. He, he, Paul desires that they give out of obedience. And so he doesn't have to, in a sense, browbeat them, right? He wants them to give. Now, if you've been attending at Riverbend for any length of time, you understand that we, we see giving as part of our worship service. You'll see each of those men, they come up, and they, that's what we talk. We really believe it's part of our worship. Uh, please don't give if you feel you have to. We'll survive without your gift. Literally. 
Give because you love the Lord Jesus. I mean, that's, that's what Paul wants, right? That's, that's his ultimate motivation. And you give in a response of gratitude of this enormous blessing that we have. First, I won't go in to hell, right? I'll never see the wages of my own sin. I don't know. I can't give you any better reason to give than that. But give because he's worthy. He's glorious of it. I think it's important to understand we come to church because God wants us to meet corporately. But there's something about corporate giving too. He wants the church to give together. We, we do individual givings. I know, you know we support missionaries all over the world. Gene and I personally, and probably you guys do different things as well. But, but the larger portion of what we do is given to this because we corporately, this is our place, this is our home, this is our family. We corporately give. Because here is where God corporately speaks to us the word of God. This is where the word comes from this pulpit. This is what brings us together. And so we see the importance of that. And one of the things we do, not only giving, but we respond by singing to the Lord. We praise Him. We confess our sins to the Lord. We express thanksgiving for forgiveness of our sins and see our salvation in Christ alone. We pray together and we petition the Lord together for things. And so we in turn demonstrate love for God by giving to Him so these ministries go forth. Now, Paul was teaching the Corinthians, he's saying, look, set aside this. First day of the week, do this regularly. Do it in response for the provision that God has given you. Um, God daily provides for his children. And and it is interesting, God teaches us to daily pray for our daily bread, right? And then yet, he provides for it. And so we respond by that. We should honor him with our giving. Second thought, the lack of generosity creates doubt and lack of direction. Look at verses 3 and 4 here. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Now verse 3 here helps us understand there's some tension here, isn't there? There's tension between the apostle and this church. He has had to defend himself many times throughout this letter. In fact, he had to defend himself particularly in chapter 9, that he was deserving to make his living from the ministry. He was deserving. Remember that passage, he, don't muzzle the ox. This is what God's called me to do. He goes through that whole passage in chapter 9, teaching that, but then he says, but I'm not taking anything from you. I mean, there was tension. And it's probably because they, they charged him with things or, or started rumors about him and maybe how he was handling money. Who knows what was going on? But we can see Paul defending himself constantly when it comes to finances with this church. And so there's tension here as he gives this command. And I think the key here is, is the church or an individual. Individual could be either way. And I think there was probably good people in this church and there were some individuals that were problems. Either or, they had lost their love for Christ. And when you lose your love for Christ... You become suspicious of people. So you don't love like God teaches us to love. Like he had to teach them in 1 Corinthians how to love. They had lost their first love in Christ. And so now they're very suspicious of everything. And they challenge him constantly. Isn't it interesting? And that's what happens. We see this even in church today. People who um, lose their love for Christ. They're very quick to judge others. 
people who have a great love for Christ, they're not foolish or non, not, they're good stewards of what they have, but yet they are kind and patient and loving and, and don't keep records and on and on. Remember, that's, this is all tied together. You look at chapter 9 and they're, they're challenging him that, that he's somehow not handling finances right. Chapter 13, he has to teach him how to love. And so there's, there's tension here as he's trying to get probably the wealthiest church on the circuit of all of them. The, um, uh, Thessalonica, Philippi, Colossae, these are all blue-collar churches. In fact, that's where many of the mines were, where they built the swords and, and military stuff. They used that labor. Very, very blue-collar. Southern Asia, um, Galatia area, not wealthy. This one, wealthy. And yet Paul has to walk on eggshells around them. So Paul tells them, look, when I arrive, I'm coming. And he himself will, he's, I, he says, look, I'm not going to take the money. You'll have to prove someone who will carry these letters and these funds, but it's not going to be me. I'm not going to do that. You need to do this, church. He's pushing them. He uses the word caressa here, and it's the word for gift. We have it, but it's an interesting the way it's linked there. It means a gracious donation. You, somebody, you're going to have to do this. This church is going to have to rise up. This church is going to have to send somebody to carry that gracious donation. Look at verse 4 again with me. He said, if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Now, there seems to be a bit of a uh, hesitancy here, doesn't it? You can see that. Just by, uh, you know, just a little word, if. If it's fitting. I I think there's several reasons here for this. First, I think he's not sure if they're going to give generously. And how do you like that? You come from the most financially stable church... And you're going to show up to Jerusalem with a gift that doesn't match what God prospered them with. So I think there's some hesitancy. He's, he's, there's maybe some embarrassment. That's his, but he loves this church, right? He wants them to give, and yet there's maybe some hesitancy there. Second, there could be some resistance from this Corinth church to be associated with Paul and not send anybody with him. They may not. If it's fitting... If this is going to somehow work together, maybe they'll go with me. Maybe they won't. Maybe they're going to get this letter and say, we're done with you, Paul. And so there's hesitancy here. And I think it's clear that Paul is headed for Jerusalem. And he seems to be asking if, if a church member will, will be, think it's proper to travel with him. But there's hesitancy here. Again, this is a church with deep trouble, isn't it? And yet we see this apostle love this church. He loves them. He wants them to be a part of this. He's still trying to disciple them. He's still trying to help them learn to honor the God who rescued them. He doesn't give up on them. He's there. And I think think it's a mark on this church that they were not Christ-centered yet. They weren't gospel-centered yet. They weren't a worshiping church, but Paul's not giving up on them. That little last phrase there in verse 4 says, they will go with me. Well, I thought, who in the world would not want to go with Apostle Paul? What, we're going to walk to Jerusalem? Ride some boats together? I mean, think about the time together with the Apostle Paul. And he goes, I'm, I'm not sure any of you want to even go with me. <laughs> I'll, I'll, walk, I'll carry you if I could get some time with you. 
See, right? Right? Because you love the same Lord he loves. You're about his word. You want to be with people who want to disciple you. You want to be with those who are interested in your heart and your soul. You want to spend time with them. Let me go. See, that's, see, I think this is what creates a stagnant church. Gossip creates doubt. Doubt leads to questioning. And soon you have a church that is full of fractions like Corinth. Oh, I don't know. I don't know, I mean, I hear, I don't, we don't know what happened this money, this, that, and on, and this, other. I mean, pretty soon, they're questioning his apostleship. So there's hesitancy. Third thought. An example of a life in harmony with the will of God. I think, I really love the positive turn that he does here. Look at verses 5 through 7. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that, You may send me on my way wherever I may go, for I do not wish to see you just now in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. Well, according to Acts 19, if you just follow this through the scriptures, Acts 19 tells us that Paul did eventually visit the churches in Macedonia. And he did eventually arrive back in Corinth. We know that in chapter 20, verse 3, he stays three months there. Christian workers like Paul, though, are highly motivated to see what God's doing. And I think we see this in this text. They, they love to see what God's doing. And they want to join what God's doing. And you can see this in this text. I, I, I think like Paul, people who are, are desirous to be a part of what God's doing, they're looking for open doors to participate where the Spirit's working. And where the Spirit's working, the Word is always pre- preached, taught, and discipled. And so I, I see this in Paul. And, and, and notice that he, he well, uh, Acts 20, I don't have time to run the other. He tells us that he was three years in Ephesus. Now, there he wrote, he wrote this epistle. Actually, it's before that. Um, Acts chapter 19. He, he wrote this epistle to the Corinthians. And all along, he planned to visit them on his way to Macedonia, but those plans changed. And I think that's important because you'll notice that he'll say, after I go through Macedonia, then I'll come to you. And, and even though he was deeply involved, now just think with me through this, through the ministry in Ephesus, and that was a challenging one to get going, center of pagan worship, right? We know that a man's going to rise up and try to kill Paul and try to stop the church, right? He's, even though he's deep in that ministry, now think with me, he's planning on his next ch- step how he's going to revisit these churches from Greece to Macedonia to Jerusalem. He is always trying to figure out how he can get to God's people. Even while he's entrenched in difficult things. How can I get to them? How can I encourage them? How can I get over across those seas and it's winter time and all of that? He's always planning and I sure enjoy this about him. I love the fact that he's doing this. I love that he's strategizing. He's, he's thinking about that next missional point. He's thinking about developing a new area somewhere the gospel hasn't been. This is what he wants to do. And this is a man gripped with the glory of Christ. He has the gospel message on his forethought and his thinking. I, I think Paul never seems to be content with what he's accomplished. I, I don't think he's a guy who looks back and says, you know, hey, that's good enough. <laughs> I got a list of churches planted. I think I'm going to set her on cruise control. He's just not that guy. He is just constantly going. Look at Romans chapter 15. This will just give you a little bit of insight of what he's thinking like even when he wrote the book, the letter to, to, uh, to the Romans. Romans chapter 15, verse 20. 
any church planner or missionary, and I think a lot of church people who want to be involved in things, this is the way they think. They, he says here in verse 20, And thus I aspire to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as is written, they who have no news of him shall see. And they who have not heard shall understand. He says, I mean, he's taken an Old Testament principle, the tr- truth there, and he's gone, this is what I want to do. I want to be like that. I want to go to the ones who haven't heard, the ones who haven't seen. Verse 22, for this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. I, there's opportunities that open up. I'm going to get to you, but there's another opportunity that I'm going to get to, and then I'm going to make my way over to you. Verse 23, but now with no further, further place for me in these regions, and since I have had many years in longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain. Whoa, he just threw in another whole country. i got to get to Spain. I love this guy. We've got to get to this whole other region that the gospel isn't in. We've got to get to Spain. It, actually, we don't know that he actually ever made it. But that was his goal. He wanted to get there. For I hope to see you in passing and to help you on the way there by you when I first enjoyed your company for a while. He goes, I hope we can get back to when it was to be when I was first there. Not what I've had to deal with in this letter. Um, at least in the Romans, the, the Rome. I can't wait to get back to that sweet fellowship. Now look what he does here. But now I'm going to Jerusalem and serving the saints. See, this is all part of this, right? For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so. And they were indebted to them. That's what I was talking about earlier. This church should have known, hey, that's Jerusalem. That's where it all began. Those people suffered for Christ. Let's go be a part of this. Here's some funds. What do you need? See, he knew that these other churches wanted that. Verse 27, and yes, they were pleased to do so, and they were indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the spiritual things, they are indebted to, to minister to them also in material needs. This is the idea. This is what he's trying to teach the church in Corinth. Look, the Romans are given. The Macedonians are given. The Galatians are given. They're all given because they know that this is where the gospel started. These are our brothers and sisters in a difficult situation. See, I have to remind us, brothers and sisters, it is the church's responsibility for the furtherance of the gospel. And if you further the gospel, guess what will happen? You'll meet needs like food and hospitals and, and orphanages. All that comes along. And that's why we, we don't first go to somewhere and say, well, let's build an orphanage or, or a hospital. We, we have a missionary there who's preaching the gospel. We pour into that missionary. We try to train, help, finances, anything we can do, try to establish that because we know what's coming. We know the grace of God is bringing the orphanages, um, the hospitals, the fresh water, all of those things. But so many churches today, they're all about, hey, we're going to get fresh water. And they die because they never hear the living water. We are not a social group. We are not United Way. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul was continually concerned about that. And so we don't depend on the government for handouts to spread the gospel. That They have no desire for those things anyway. That's our job. That's the great commission given to the church. And that's what we see in this apostle. He wants the church around the world to be strengthened. And he wants Corinthians to get on board. And they're lazy, and they're fractured, and they've become dull in their hearing. 
So no matter what people thought of the Apostle Paul, whether they ever gave to his ministry or not, he was dedicated to seeing Christ's ministry go forth. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 18, when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. That's what he had to tell them. You don't want to help me, but I'm going to preach the gospel. Whether, whether you think I have a right to funds or not, I'm going to preach it. Brothers and sisters, find people who love Christ, who love his word, who love his people, and run with them. Run with them. Verse 7 again, just quickly. This is, there's some interesting thoughts I want to give you here. For I do not wish to see you just in passing. For I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. See, Paul knew a quick visit wasn't what this church needed. I think that's what we want sometimes. Hey, can you just give me the 14 weeks of discipleship training in like an half an hour? <laughs> I, I just really don't have time. I got all the stuff going on, Right? i got to live in this dying world that's all fading away and really is not going to be valuable in the kingdom. <laughs> I joke. Paul says, look, I, I, I want to be with you. See, he loved them. He knew he needed extended amount of time with them. That's, why, that's what discipleship is. He knew they had sinful struggles just like we have. And he knew he needed to help them and further them in their understanding of the gospel and the application in their life. And so he desired that they would take part of that with him. Now, Paul also knew that his plans weren't on his own. Look at the end of the phrase, the end of the verse there. He says, if the Lord permits. See, Paul knew that his time was in God's hands. And he had placed his life in the submission of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So his time was in, he goes, if the Lord plans. And I think we have to learn to do that, right? Lord, what is your will? I think this is one of the greatest examples that Paul sets for the church, both in the first century and today, is like he does with Corinth here, live in harmony with the will of God? So that's a good question for us right now. Am I, in my life, in my present relationships, friendships, life under the sun, life in this world, in this fallen world, am I in the will of God? It's just a good question we have to ask. And see, that's why Paul always goes back to things like this, that the Lord permits if the Lord permits, I want to be in the Lord's will. And so, do we go where he wants us to go? And do we go when he wants us to go? And do we do what he wants us to do? Or is that always challenged by our own wills and our own desires? Do we twist that? Do we try to make God's will conform to our will? I mean, just good questions. Do you search for the will of God? When Gina and I started, set out after many, many years of ministry of, by godly men sending us to do different things. And we served and planted churches and helped trouble churches. And there were some hard, hard, very thin years. And, and when we finally got done with that, before we came here, we said, okay, Lord, we've always gone where your men have sent us. Where do you want us to be? And we prayed over and over, countless times, you and I prayed, Lord, show us the center of your will. We don't want to get to the right, left. And we started to search our life. And one of the things that we did was make sure that we were right with the Lord. Sin was confessed. Marriage was on solid ground, on Christ. I mean, we went through processes like that to make sure that we were walking with the Lord so we wouldn't land somewhere we shouldn't be. 
Now look, we're not perfect at all. You know your pastor isn't. But there, there's a sweetness to find in his will. And that's what Paul was after. So much great lessons for this. Last, fourth, pursue Christ, his word, his people, and you'll catch the gaze of a great adversary. Look at verse 8 with me. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Well, here in verse 8, we find the exact time. We find where he's at, right? Pentecost, as we were learning um, in our Old Testament study on Wednesday nights, that this was during the Feast of Harvest. It was celebrated seven weeks after the Passover. So this would put Paul in Ephesus probably in this time in the Jewish calendar, somewhere towards the end of May, early June. That's where he's at. And, and, and you think about this. He says, look, I'm going to stay here till Pentecost. There's probably several reasons. One, what an opportunity with his native people. You know he's not going to take <laughs> the Feast of Harvest, Pentecost. He's not going to miss that to share Jesus. And so you know that's what he's doing. He's a missionary. He wants, he wants his own people to know Jesus. And that's one thing. But also Pentecost is a marker for the early church. This was when the church was birthed. And doubtlessly, he wanted to be involved in the worship services, the remembrance of what God had done there in Jerusalem, there in that area. And though he was in Ephesus, he would, they would take time in that church. We're going to celebrate that God established his church on this earth. And so this was important to him. But notice probably even a more important statement in verse 9. Look at it with me. For a wide door of effectual service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. See, Paul knew his Lord. He knew his Lord. And he recognized where he was working and what he was doing. And, and, and when you read this, you just get this understanding. He sought with all of his heart to find what God was doing, and he wants to join him. And you've heard me say that a million times this pulpit. I'm going to say it till I don't have any breath left. I want to find where God's working and I want to join him. I spent too many times in my younger years thinking he was working over here or maybe it fit my pattern a little better or what I wanted to do. And you find yourself in unfruitful ministries. I want to see fruit. And so did Paul. He wanted to see this. And so apparently in Ephesus, there are numerous um, opportunities for the gospel here, and he sees them, and so he uses this figure of speech, a wide door for effective service has opened up to me. It's a term, it's not just to this, he uses it in 2 Corinthians when he writes to this group again, in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, when I came to Troas, the door was open for me. Isn't it wonderful when a missionary shows up, we're going to have some, two are coming from Philippines in September, another one's coming from Japan, and what we want to listen to say, what's God doing there? And are these men recognize it? And what's happening? And they're probably going to say, there's a door opening. There's this opportunity. We see the Lord working. He says the same thing to the Colossae church that God, he prays actually, praying that God will open a door for the word. I mean, that's a good prayer, isn't it? Do you pray that when you have maybe a, a child you're going to visit that doesn't know Christ or you're a relative or you're going to job and maybe you've made a lunch appointment with someone that, Lord, will you open the door where I can speak the gospel to him or her? This is the way we think. Now, you may say, what, what opportunities did he have in Ephesus, right? We, we kind of want to look. And I'm thinking that too. I go, man, he's in Ephesus, right? This. I wonder what happened. You know what happened? Demetrius, the idol builder gets a riot going against him and tries to take his life and tries to destroy the church there. 
So we're never told what actually, what these open doors were. All we know is it was bad. And I think that's why he says there's an adversary. There's an adversary. There's always these things. Paul was doing things that we know he was teaching in the halls of Tyrannius. This was a school that he opened where he trained men there. Um, the Bible tells us in Acts 20 that he was going publicly preaching the word of God. He was also going house to house. He was calling Jews and Gentiles to repentance throughout the providence of Asia, particularly in Ephesus. We know he was doing that. So he has this unashamed, rent, uh, 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 relentless pursuit of souls. That's what he does. But at the same time, he's met with great opposition. Leaders of towns raised up against him caused riots to try to kill him. And not just once, but several times. Later in his life, he's often dragged off in courts because they were going to kill him if they didn't. Men took vows, right? They took vows that he would die before they ate or drank again. And so he says there are many adversaries. Look, as Paul was pursuing what God was doing, he was catching the gaze of Satan's eyes, wasn't he? Satan hates the things of God. He hates missions. He hates people being discipled. He hates when people love the Lord with all their heart, their soul, and their mind, and their strength. He hates that. He knows good fruit comes from that. He knows God draws more to himself through those type of people. But like us, and certainly Paul knew this, that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And so Paul kept pressing on. And he's trying to get this church, Corinth, come on, get with the game. Let's go. Yes, there's great adversaries. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And Paul demonstrated that in his life. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 and following. He says this. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I read those words this week and I thought, only conduct yourself in the manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say think about it. Maybe find an area that you can do a little better in. It says only conduct yourself. He goes on to say, so that whether I come and see you or remain in absence. Of course, the only one that aren't getting promises that he's coming, right? He wants to be with all kinds of Christians. I, I get calls every week from missionaries. Hey, Scott, when are you coming? We want to do another conference. Hey, would you come over here? Would you come do that? I can't tell. You know, I'm going to come. And then I look at my calendar and go, oh, my. Then I look at what we're going through as a church. I go, oh, Lord, how am I going to get there? I want to come. I, I, tell, I just told someone this week. I said, I want to come. I, I promise. We'll work on it. We'll pray. That maybe God will send it. I get this. See, he tells everybody, look, I want to come. <laughs> but, but, but why I'm in absence, I, 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 I want you to stand firm. This is what he goes on to say. Firm in one spirit and striving with one mind for the faith of the gospel. In, in no way alarmed by your opponents. And then he says this. When your opponents come against you, which is a sign of destruction for them. So we have a lot of opponents, right? Well, you have to realize this world is opposing not us. They are opposing God. And their destruction's coming. And that gives him strength. And so Paul was able to go through these hard times because he knew God would set the record straight. Well, as we move to communion, I want to give you a thought. That's why the men come forward here in a moment. I walk down. Let me just tell you this. I, I have said this many times in many places around the world. It is costly to stand for Christ. It's easy to run away. Right? It's costly. I, I, think about it. It's costly.
to be uncompromising and loving because you're vulnerable. Trust me. When you are uncompromising but loving, you are vulnerable. But that's what God calls us to. And this is how I see our friend, the Apostle Paul, live. So you want to follow Jesus. It might cost you everything. Father, thank you for the reminder here. Paul is in a difficult church. They are not responding like the other churches did. Selfishness has caused them to put all of their thoughts and ambitions on their own views, their own theologies, their fractions that they had shattered into, Lord. And they are not seeing even the simplest that there were churches in need. And so the Apostle Paul has to disciple them. Lord, I pray and I, I really believe that we, Lord, you've grown us and we're not this church. But yet, Lord, we can hear this message to our own hearts and we can realize that there is a tendency for us to be selfish. And then if we are, we are blind to the needs of others. In fact, we may be the first to pick out things that somebody's done wrong in a lack of grace and kindness and discipleship. So, Lord, may we first look at our own relationship with Jesus Christ. May we learn to love our Lord with all our heart, our soul, and our mind, our strength. May we be discipled in such a way so we can do that more consistently. So that we are not part of the problem, we're part of the solution of a church that loves the Lord, loves His Word, and loves one another. And Lord, we beg you and plead with you that you would do that here, Lord. Lord, whatever you choose, however you choose to meet our needs or cause us to trust you in greater ways, whatever that way, may we love you more. And I pray you'd continue to gather a group of people here who are so dedicated to that. Lord, bless our time around the table. May it cause us to be reminded that you are worthy to live for because you died for us. In Jesus' name.